This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is James Thornton, founder and CEO of Client Earth, an organization of activist lawyers committed to securing a healthy planet. Client Earth works to protect the environment by using advocacy, litigation, and research, providing the best scientific and policy analysis when making strategic decisions for social change. James and his colleagues have positioned environmental concerns at the forefront of the public agenda across the European Union and are working to level the playing field between corporate and public interests. James founded Client Earth in 2007 as the first organization of its kind, bringing together a small but influential group of legal experts acting to address environmental and health concerns at the pan-European level. This team works to ensure that sound laws linked to a wide range of issues, biodiversity, climate and energy, forests, access to justice, financial institutions, company transparency, and more, are both created and rigorously enforced. James has been a champion for environmental issues and government and corporate transparency for decades. He founded the Los Angeles office of the National Resources Defense Council and has been an executive in several other sectors of the nonprofit world. He's the author of an environmental legal thriller titled Immediate Harm, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, magna cum laude with departmental honors in philosophy from Yale, and is an Ashoka Fellow as well as a Conservation Fellow of the Zoological Society of London. Client Earth was recognized as Business Green's NGO of the Year in 2012. James, it's great to have you with us here today. Pleasure to be with you, Robert. Well, you've expressed that your roots in challenging the status quo and your interest in environmental issues trace back, as a number of social entrepreneurs' roots do, to the dinner table with your parents and families as a child. Can you tell us about the environment you grew up in and how that heralded your passion for philosophy? Certainly. Uh, well, at, at home, uh, there were four boys. Uh, there were five years uh, among us. And uh, my parents were both very bright and progressive people. My father was a law professor. And I felt uh, when I looked back on my childhood, once I'd gotten towards middle age, that I, around the dinner table, had learned the Socratic method. So we had four competitive kids. And the uh, the question was always who could win the argument. Uh, and my father would moderate, uh, put out very difficult questions, and continue to unpeel your answer until if you were unlucky, as frequently happened, uh, there was no answer left and you had to start all over again. Uh, <laughs> when somebody did give a good answer, he would take his finger, uh, wet it in his tongue, and put a little plus uh, up in the air so that uh, score was being kept and you really had to work. Um, and it was, it was great because there was, after surviving dinner in my household, there was no company of people that you could walk into and not feel like you could uh, hold your own in a conversation. Um, that's really where the philosophy and the, the inquiring that philosophy does uh, came to me. And then in terms of physical environment, I lived in New York uh, growing up in a suburb called Douglaston around New York City. And I had access to uh, marshes and wetlands. And as a kid, I spent a lot of my time in nature 
And that is something that environmental activists are, are often uh, recall that when they were when they were young, they actually had a, a very deep, you know, emotional and visceral connection with the natural world. And when you were young, did you know that you would actually go into this? Did you have an idea when you were young, when you were going around these areas of nature, that you would devote your life to it through the law? Not through the law, absolutely not. I thought I was going to devote my life to it uh, by becoming a, a scientist that studied spiders. <laughs> spiders. <laughs> yes, I was particularly I was particularly fond of spiders uh, and and all kinds of bugs. And then at a certain point, when I was at university, I, I thought, hmm, you know, I, I'm not sure that's quite a big enough subject. And I, I went into law because I uh, didn't know what else to do, in a sense, at that point, in order to be of service. And I felt that there's a very strong urge to be of service. And I thought if I became a lawyer, I'd have powerful tools that I could use, even though I didn't know what to use them for. And then in law school, I did an internship at the Natural Resources Defense Council saw the way they used law to protect the environment, which was sort of a, its beginning point when I was doing it with them. And it was a big click for me. I said, this puts together and the skills I've learned with my deep passion to protect the planet. And uh, I never really looked back. Did the strong urge to be of service come from your father? Or where else would you uh, say that it came from? Well, um, I think it was both parents, really, and in a sense, more my mother. Um, she had a very uh, strong and deep uh, religious impulse, which I uh, shared as a, as a boy. And uh, in a sense, there was this very interesting balance between them of, uh, that, I, that I took on of this rigorous, skeptical, intellectual, analytic method from my father and this uh, deep sort of commitment towards life from my mother. And after graduating from Yale, you obtained your law degree. Uh, as you mentioned, you worked for a federal judge and later for a major corporate law firm, and you eventually landed at the Natural Resources Defense Council. How did this series of experiences mold your personal beliefs and aspirations and expose you to the, what's really the imbalance of power between corporate and public interests? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I was in a Wall Street law firm, and there what I saw was that there were this tremendous number of intelligent people, highly trained intelligent people, who were serving the needs of their corporate clients. I didn't feel I was inherently evil or anything, but what was clear to me is that uh, corporations certainly had everyone that they possibly needed to protect their interests. Uh, and at NRDC, what I learned was that the there was a small group of lawyers who were at least as good as the Wall Street lawyers, at least as good fighting for, for the planet, and that if you know what you're doing, if you have the right strategy, if you pick the right thing to work on, whether it's legislation or case, you really can use the power of the law to take this enormous imbalance of power. It really, between the weak and the strong, only law can level the playing field. And if you're doing it in the right way, it's, it's immensely powerful. So I learned that at, uh, at NRDC. And then when I started suing companies, another thing that was of great interest was I realized that the people in the companies were people just like me. So there was no, there was no real difference between us. It's just that they were in a different position. You know, they had kids who would complain to them that they were being sued by an environmental group. And we would discuss this while I was killing them in litigation. <laughs> <laughs> killing, kill, killing them in litigation, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And when you first started out uh, with the NRDC, was there an issue of resources? Was was that a component that was uh, difficult to overcome? Was that something that fundraising was relatively easy given the the uh, the subject? Was it hard? How how did that work? Well, in a sense, fundraising is always hard um, if you're living in the in the charitable sector. But uh, NRDC, by the time I was working at full time, was then ten years old, so they had a very good track record. Um, what I did in my work at NRDC was to pursue a different funding model. It was really my first experiment in social entrepreneurship in that I brought a whole series of cases, ultimately over 100, under the Federal Clean Water Act against companies that were polluting because that was during the Reagan administration and Reagan had stopped enforcing environmental law and American environmental law gives you the unique opportunity to, as a citizen, go into federal court and enforce the law just like the attorney general would do. And if you win, then you get your attorney fees. And uh, over the course of the time I was doing that water enforcement project, I wound up out of those attorney's fees that went to uh, NRDC, it paid for all the people working in the program, and then actually made a million profit for for the organization. So I was fundraising for myself in this, this kind of unique way. Um, and it gave me a real taste for fundraising. And in setting up the LA office of NRDC, I, I then um, learned the fundraising technique of working with wealthy people and finding people who are interested in supporting the good work. And that is, um, that's a fascinating process, which I still like and I, I do a lot of here. And you mentioned founding the NRDC office in Los Angeles. You worked in California for a number of years. Uh, you moved to Europe in the early 2000s to lead a research team focusing on alternative medicines. And I understand that it was at this time that you realized Europe's environmental landscape was really ripe for some innovative civil engagement. Uh, what were the major flags that signaled that addressing environmental issues at the European Union level uh, could be such a successful approach? Well, one thing that really uh, surprised me about the European landscape was that the environmental organizations used law very differently or didn't use law as much as the organizations in the United States. So uh, groups like the Sierra Club or EDF or NRDC, the big environmental organizations there, have always uh, used law as a, a central capacity of their activities. It's really one of the central things in the environmental movement in the United States. And I think the reason for that is that in the, in the 60s, when the civil rights era was, 50s and 60s really, uh, was at its uh, blooming time, if you were a black person and asserted your rights, you were put in jail and lawyers needed to be involved in that movement from the beginning to get activists out of jail. It then went on and lawyers became involved in the strategic thinking of the civil rights movement and then in the environmental movement uh, when it started about 10 years, sort of about 10 years later, uh, it was a natural thing for lawyers to be uh, involved in that, just as they have been in the civil rights movement. In Europe, the environmental movement has evolved in an entirely different way. There wasn't a civil rights movement because there wasn't a need for one. And instead, the environmental movement was built around issues. Uh, and in the 60s, it was a nuclear issue. Uh, in Germany, in the UK, France, elsewhere, that really pulled people together. And instead of law being a central 
focus of the way problems were highlighted and addressed. Uh, instead, it became campaigning. So uh, that's what then really formed the core of how environmental activists worked on issues uh, in the EU. So the, by the time I, I came here and um, started analyzing the situation, that was still the case. And I started to compare the number of lawyers working full-time on behalf of the environment in Europe with in the United States. And uh, in Europe, there were only a handful, 20 or so um, lawyers inside environmental charities working for the public interest, whereas in America, it was easy to find more like 500 or so. So it was a very tiny thing in Europe, and, and there was no large group of them. There was one here and one there serving the interests of their own environmental organization, but really responding to questions and uh, even doing the corporate work of the organization, but not creating legal strategies, uh, and that's what I saw was a great opportunity. So looking around, I said it would be potentially a real game changer in the EU system if I could create a group of lawyers who were top class experts in the use of environmental lawyer law, were strategic thinkers about using law, and were able to be deployed on what the key environmental challenges were. And indeed, there's been a lot of uptake. It's seven years old, and we went from what was originally sort of the corner of my bedroom uh, to uh, now a group of 60 people in London and Brussels and, and Warsaw. And is there the same kind of pushback, uh, political pushback, that you find in this country uh, with the EPA and uh, people looking to cut the funding of the EPA and, uh, and uh, certainly the political pressures that uh, people feel with, uh, uh, with coal, the coal states and, and the oil states and, uh, and all kinds of things like that. Are you seeing the same kind of pushback in Europe? Um, you know, it's, it's not exactly the same, it's, uh, but there is a mix of things which is as can be as, as complicated, frustrating, and you know, and uh, on the wrong side of life in Europe as uh, as in the United States when you when you look closely. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The I mean, there isn't as there is in the United States this tremendous dysfunction uh, in the uh, in the central the federal government where you know sides can't work together. That really isn't the case in Europe, which is helpful. It. I'm afraid maybe moving a bit in that direction, but we're not there yet. So that government dysfunction isn't there. But um, you have in the UK the uh, Chancellor, uh, so it's like the American Treasury Secretary, coming out in his annual speech a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, he will work to repeal the Habitats Directive. Now, the Habitats Directive in Europe is really the central, one of the two anyway, central laws protecting wildlife and the, the fact that the, the British government has stated that it wants to repeal it for all of Europe is very much one of those bad pushback signs. Um, in uh, Poland, you raised the issue of coal and we spent a lot of time on coal. We, through litigation, convinced the British government not to build a new generation of coal-fired power stations, which they were planning to do. Um, and that was relatively gentlemanly. We, that was two years of pre-court proceedings. In Poland, um, the government has, as its national policy, to build coal-fired power stations. And 
Um, in, in Poland, there's a normal phrase in the language, like in the Homeric epithets, you know, cow-eyed Hera and fleet-footed Achilles. It's in, in Polish, it's coal, our national treasure, you know, and it's often said. Um, most of their electricity is generated from coal. Most of the coal-fired power stations are getting old. And the government uh, is dedicated to perfectly replicating the Soviet energy policy of the 1970s uh, and building huge, huge coal-fired power stations. Now, the pre-litigation proceedings and generally the discussions didn't go anywhere. So the uh, way that it's being set up is four huge investments in mega power stations. And we wound up through our Warsaw office and suing every um, one of those investments. We've killed four of the power stations and we've got the other 10 on hold. Now, the pushback there was pretty extreme. The Treasury Minister held a press conference to denounce us as enemies of the state. Um, as you might expect, that immediately went on our CVs um, as uh, something we were proud of. Yes, yes. Uh, but we were, we were also then investigated by the Secret Service. Um, our office was raided twice by the police. Um, and we were denounced in the um, right-wing um, company newspaper. It was sort of like the Financial Times if it were um, edited by the Tea Party movement, you know, really quite a, quite a right-wing paper. On the day we were in the Supreme Court in Poland, we were denounced as being eco-terrorists, um, which is a, you know, a strange form of eco-terrorism really being in the Supreme Court. But it, that, you get that whole constellation of things together and you can see that it was a, it was a difficult uh, environment to operate in. So much so that what was interesting to me is that none of the other environmental groups in Poland were willing to take on coal at all. They thought it was too dangerous. So you know, Greenpeace, and WWF, and uh, Friends of the Earth, and the local groups in Poland all said, you know, you're on your own. We, we can't support you in attacking coal, even though it is a big problem. We think it's just too dangerous a situation. So we've proved that it isn't. Um, we're now writing opinion pieces in that same right-wing newspaper two years later um, because we've established that we're credible, serious, and we actually win these cases. And would you say that the economic aspect, uh, what you just described with coal, uh, is that one of or the major flaw within the European Union in creating and implementing environmental policy? But it's certainly an important one. Um, you know, from the perspective I had as an American lawyer, I looked towards Europe and said, oh, they, they have better solutions to everything. Now that I'm, a, I'm also a European lawyer, I'm an English lawyer now, and I practice here, so you see it up close, and it's fascinating to compare. Europe often comes up with very good ideas, and the laws often sound very good, but they're often not implemented very well. Um, and uh, I mean, I'll give you an example on that. We brought a case against the UK government <clears throat> that went up to the UK Supreme Court on air pollution. And there's, an, there's a European-wide directive on air pollution that works pretty much like the American uh, Clean Air Act in that it sets numbers on the pollutants, you know, numerical limitations, and gives deadlines by when a country has to come into compliance. Britain was coming nowhere near compliance and it had no intention of doing so. It told us it was going to miss the deadline by a minimum of 13 years, even though by its numbers, almost 40,000 people a year were dying of air pollution. So we went to court, and in the Supreme Court, 
um, the, the justices said, okay, client earth, um, you are obviously right. You know, the government is, is violating. Now, government, what about, what do you have to say? And the British government stood up and more or less said, your honors, you need to understand how the game is played. All the countries go to Brussels and we make laws about the environment and they sound great and we take credit for them and we look terrific and the citizens are happy because they feel like we're doing something. Then we come home and we don't have any particular intention of implementing the laws uh, unless it's convenient to do so. And the last thing we ever thought was that some citizens group was going to be able to take us to court and try and make us comply with our own law. So, well, and, uh, the, in Italy, there's even a, um, an aphorism which goes, one goes to Brussels to make the law, one comes home to find a way around it. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how ironic and how, how true, uh, just across yeah. the board, how true. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of what we do, and one of the other fascinating things for me that I discovered about the, the methodology of the European environmental groups when I got here was because they were focusing on campaigning, which means bringing issues up for resolution and maybe passing laws about them, uh, because that was the focus, then they didn't focus on the implementation or enforcement of laws. And partly that's because it's kind of technical and you need to, you really need to have lawyers involved if the question is, is the law being implemented or if not, how do you enforce it? And there wasn't a group of people doing it. Uh, and that's one of the things that wasn't acting as a kind of check on this uh, lack of implementation and, and lack of enforcement. So it was really cool to be able to come into the system and say, okay, we can do that and we can pick um, some statutes, some cases, some countries to bring to the court and see if we can actually force compliance. And, you know, that is working. Is, will there be pushback on that? Well, yes. I mean, Britain immediately after it lost this case in its own Supreme Court went to Brussels to try and raise their pollution limits so that even when they were ordered to comply, the numbers would be so high that they wouldn't have to do anything. Um, so far, they've lost that fight, but we've had to, you know, move uh, that campaign, our own legal campaign, into the into the Parliament in Brussels. And what strategies does the client Earth team use to try to level imbalances of power between industry, government, citizen involvement? Well, you know, it really comes down to knowledge. So the, I mean, that's the great thing. So if you just have a few people who are well-versed, who are talented and well-versed and work hard, uh, you can really do it. And um, I first, when I was going around scoping out the way I was going to approach Kleiner, I went and met the guy in the parliament in Brussels who was the chair of the environment committee. And um, he said, look, I'm on your side and it's wonderful what you say you're going to be doing and I really need it. Here's why. He said, what happens is we get the environmental groups coming in and, you know, I'm on their side and the problem is that they come in and say, well, we have this big principle that we think you should include in the legislation. And he said, and they don't go beyond that. On the other side, we have BMW or some other big company coming in with their lawyers and they have a series of 100 pages of amendments to the proposed bill that they want put in. And he said, hey, look, we don't have the time to take the environmentalists' grand objectives and work with them in the same way that the companies have taken their objectives. 
So if you use your knowledge, um, you'll be able to um, balance the scales. And to a remarkable degree, that's worked. You know, one reason is that in the Parliament in Brussels, this was another amazing thing to me, the lawmakers don't have much by way of legal help either. Very, very little. You know, in the Congress in the United States, um, the people in the Senate and House both have lots of legal help. Makes sense because they're writing laws. Not so in the Parliament in Brussels. The people who are in Parliament are generally not lawyers, uh, yet they're working on legislation and they're doing it without legal help. So if you show, show up and say, look, we're experts in the environment and you know we're on the same side in this particular piece of legislation, can we help you? The answer has always been, yes, please help us. This is what a great thing. So we've been able, in key pieces of legislation that we were interested in, work very directly with the, and openly with the uh, people who were actually writing the laws in a way that the groups in the United States don't get to do, even though they're much larger than we are and they've been around for much longer because of the sort of phalanx of lawyers that protect the lawmakers uh, in the United States. So the access to actually lawmaking has surprised me in the European level. And if you come into the lawmaking process knowing these issues that we've learned now about how laws are frequently not implemented, then you can try, when the laws are being written, to put in good provisions on implementation, on enforcement, so that as we evolve the laws, you know, we come to a place where they will not only sound good, but actually touch the ground. Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and James Thornton, founder and CEO of Client Earth. You know, the cliche would have us believe that companies, industries have no interest in the environment and all they're interested in is the bottom line and satisfying their stockholders. Uh, do you find that to be uh, the case or is that truly a, a cliche that's run its course? I think it depends a lot on what sort of company. So I, um, I don't think it's possible to talk about you know companies in general. There are certainly companies who are taking what you might think of as a uh, rapidly anti-environmental position. Um, you know, one of the unfortunate things that's going to be happening soon is a change. I think in that the European goal on the use of renewable energy. Right now, we have a goal of all of Europe, or Europe overall, generating 20% of its energy by renewable sources by 2020. That would be a great thing, and it would make Europe the leader, as it's in a position to do, on renewables and you know, lead by example for the rest of the world. But um, I was just talking to the head of a friendly head of a company yesterday 
who was saying, well, uh, it's very likely that that goal will now be removed because the heads of the um, energy companies, the power generation companies, which are mostly burning fossil fuel, of course, are seeing that their business model is being attacked by all of the quite successful renewable energy projects that are coming up all over Europe, particularly in Germany, but everywhere. And they have been lobbying to kill all of the subsidies for renewable energy, and they may succeed in, in getting Europe to decide, well, uh, renewable energy is now a mature technology which needs no support. It would be a huge mistake since fossil fuels get lots and lots of um, benefits underwritten by the taxpayer. So that's an example of how industry still is working against. But you know there are there are others. I mean, the insurance industry in the EU is is very far ahead in understanding that global warming is real and you know affects their business model. You have green energy companies who are very much you know on side uh, on trying to move things in the right direction, and you even have now some banks that are beginning to talk in a very helpful way about uh, investment, and I find this a really interesting area. So the theory uh, is that some of the uh, assets that companies like Exxon and Shell and BP own will have to remain in the ground and be unburned, and the coal companies remain in the ground and be unburned forever if we are to stay under the two degree limit on global warming beyond which things get really dangerous. And if so, those would become stranded assets, all that coal and oil in the ground uh, would be stranded assets. So what about uh, pension funds and other investors, banks, uh, looking at investing in those companies, which are in all the portfolios of all the big banks, all of the big um, pension funds? Will it be possible to convince them to start divesting um, in carbon-centered assets, um, and some are beginning to talk about it, and uh, that's that's an exciting prospect. So you see different things happening in different uh, industry segments, um, and that's encouraging because there really weren't, you know, 20 years ago or longer when I was starting, um, we were routinely denounced, uh, us environmental activists, as being, you know, against um, the, against human life, and we were just crazy, and now much has shifted. Um, the, um, it's not possible to talk that way anymore, certainly in Europe, and instead anti-environmental stances are couched, as you were suggesting, um, in, in economic terms. You know, it's fascinating to compare the system in place uh, here in the United States, where you were born, and that of Europe in the realm of environmental legislation. Can you shed some light on how legislation in the European Union trickles down and throughout the federation of 27 member states, as it does with 50 here in the United States? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Um, the systems are, in a certain sense, look pretty similar, and, and yet they behave quite differently when, when you look in a, in a detailed way. Um, it reminds me of Winston Churchill's uh, comment about the English spoken in England and in the United States when he said they were... Um, two great countries separated by the same language. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good one, yeah. and I sometimes think of that when I think about the legal systems as well, because uh, at a 
a high level, you know, they look kind of similar in that in the United States you have a, you know, the 50 states and a federal system. Each state has its own laws, and then the federal government makes overarching federal legislation that applies to all of the states. It's more complicated in Europe. You, you have now 28 member states, and you have a central authority, the European Union. The European Union does make legislation uh, that binds all of the member states, but it's a weaker entity. The EU itself is a weaker entity than the federal government in the United States by far. So uh, legislation is made by consensus among all the 28 countries. So they've all agreed on whatever the new law will be in Brussels before it comes to the countries. But then uh, in the way it's usually done, there is um, an, a kind of an extra step. So what's called a directive gets written in the directive, say, on the, about clean air, instructs the different member states to enact legislation which meets the objectives of the European legislation. So each government, some, you know, a directive comes out of Brussels, and then every country has to act um, through its own parliament uh, to implement that legislation. So there's an extra step where things can go wrong and often do, so that you have um, country, uh, countries take uh, <clears throat> sometimes years to implement the, the European rules and sometimes just ignore it. I mean, we found that, and we did a study not long ago uh, in Poland and found that the Polish government had simply not quite gotten around to implementing most of the environmental legislation that it was required to do. Now, that was obviously intentional, and uh, uh, that makes using that legislation much, much harder in Poland. It's still theoretically possible, but it's much harder. So there's a, that extra step of um, the requirement that the countries transpose the law that comes from Brussels into their own native legal systems it makes things more complicated. I mean, another thing that's it's really quite different is, um, you know, I took for granted when I was an American lawyer that you can go into federal court and bring environmental cases to say that citizens' rights in this respect or that respect have been infringed by some bad conduct, whether that bad conduct is by a company or by the government. In Europe, bringing uh, cases is much, much more difficult for a number of reasons. And, when I was first talking about doing this work, I would talk to Europeans and say that I want to bring cases, not only cases, but it's an important part of it. And they would say, well, you know, you're just a litigious American. You know, over here, we're actually very nice people, and we don't bring lawsuits, we just talk to each other. And uh, it seemed naive to me, and it was, because companies use litigation the same way they, uh, in, in Europe uh, they do in the United States, but the uh, civil society hadn't learned to do that. One reason was really that there are much bigger barriers, like I was saying. And in the UK, the barrier was costs. So that there's a different rule on costs. In America, if I sue you, we each bear our own costs. In an environmental case, if you're the government or you're the Ford Motor Company, and I sue you under an environmental statute and win, you actually have to pay my costs, um, which is a great inducement to citizens trying to use the courts to enforce the law. In Britain, the rule is has always been the so-called British rule that goes back to the 11th century, I think, uh, that whoever sues the other person 
if I sue you and I win, um, you pay my costs. Um, if I sue you and lose, I pay your costs. So um, bringing a case as a citizen against a company or against the government um, can cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds. And as a result, almost nobody ever brought cases. Um, so we sued the UK in an international tribunal and got an order against the UK requiring it to change that rule in environmental cases. And happily, it is um, changing that rule. So it will become affordable to, to bring cases and, and use the law. Um, another joke I can't resist telling you is that uh, the it's pretty easy to get into court in, in, the, in the UK. Standing as to bring a case is easy, unlike in some other European countries. But the costs were high. So the, the old line is, Her Majesty's courts are open to all citizens, just like the Ritz. And, uh, that, <laughs> yes, that yes. If, you have, if you have $800 a night, the Ritz is very open and happy to have you. Exactly so. Yeah. And that was the way Her Majesty's courts were. Now, uh, now that's changing, partly due to this, this suit we brought. But in Germany, uh, the standing, the ability to get into court was hard to achieve. So it was very hard to get into court to bring an environmental case. So we sued Germany in this international tribunal and beat them there, and that's now changing. Um, and a really big difference between the EU and US in this respect is if you believe as an American citizen that the federal government is not complying with the environmental law in some way, as often happens, then you can go into the federal court and uh, make your claim and it will be heard. And if you win, the federal government will be ordered to uh, comply with the law and then it basically does. It sometimes takes a long time, but it does it. Completely different story in the EU. So if you believe, that if you're a citizen of France or Germany or anywhere, and you believe that the EU is violating its own laws, you know, the laws that apply to all of Europe um, on behalf of the environment, um, you would think that you could go into the European court and bring a case, but you can't. Um, the, uh, it's, it's entirely closed uh, to you. And um, so we brought a, a case against the EU as well in this international tribunal and won. And we'll see what the, um, what the EU does about that. The EU <clears throat> has done, it's a mixed bag. Really. <clears throat> it has prevented you know, another world war starting in Europe, which is what it was designed to do. And that's you know, and a, a very enlightened and ambitious thing that has so far been successful. It has enormously enhanced environmental protection in Europe. So even though I've been complaining about lack of enforcement and so on, uh, the protections aren't that bad uh, in Europe uh, compared to many places in the world, obviously. And the main reason that there are, um, in many cases, pretty decent standards is really just down to the, uh, to the EU. It has had a really central role in creating good, where there are good rules, uh, in creating those good rules. The, many countries would not have the rules they have now uh, were, it, were it not for the EU. And, you know, and that's a great thing. And because people in Europe die of the same cancers that everybody else does, uh, are people less willing or, or uh, able to hide behind this quote-unquote civil society that you mentioned? Um, 
Good question. I, you know, people are obviously do die of the same cancers, and you know, the air pollution is actually a much worse problem in Europe than it is in the United States, surprisingly, um, because the, um, the it is mostly down to motor vehicles burning diesel rather than um, gasoline, or as they say in Britain, petrol, which is much cleaner. So that uh, uh, deaths are about three hundred thousand a year from you know, air pollution, and a lot of that is, is down to cancer. Um, the one thing that's, I would say, different in terms of civil society here is that while in the United States you have a large group of people who are very knowledgeable uh, and a vocal group that is very contrary, um, in Europe there's, in civil society, uh, pretty much everyone agrees on a lot of the environmental issues. I mean, a lot of people agree on what the problems are. Um, even when it comes to climate skepticism, the, there are climate skeptics in Europe, but they're really restricted to, uh, the, to the UK. In the non-UK part of the EU, you know, you have people on the right and people on the left politically who all pretty much agree on uh, global warming and the need to do something about it, even though they're not doing enough. You know, so uh, that, that balance in civil society you know, is, is rather different. And where do you feel Europe stands uh, compared to the rest of the world in creating a healthier planet, uh, a more environmentally conscious populace, and how do you deal with a country like China? Mm. Um, I was afraid you were going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was afraid I was going to ask it as well, so uh, I'm not going to withdraw the question. Please proceed. <laughs> sure. Now, in um, the, I think in the EU, as I was saying in a slightly different way a minute ago, I think the um, people are more aware of environmental issues and there tends to be more, more agreement on the need to do something about them. Um, and in certain respects, the European legislation um, is better. So, for example, the toxics, like you were asking about cancer, toxics legislation, uh, so the regulation of toxic substances, and potentially carcinogenic substances, is much better in Europe. Um, than in the United States, where the legislation is, is quite old and you know doesn't do much. Um, then, so, so on the what's good about the European system? Well, people are more aware of it. There's more agreement. Often, there is a theoretical understanding of how to do something about it. Sometimes there is then a pretty good legal architecture to deal with it. And where it falls down then is um, is enforcement. Um, the yeah enforcement or sometimes lack of will. So uh, in the EU system, it is possible, like in the United States, where a state can go in some cases beyond federal legislation. Um, in the EU, uh, uh, member states can also go beyond uh, a general legislation, and the uh, and Britain actually did that on climate change uh, back when we had a Labour government. And they enacted what was the world's best, uh, it's not perfect, but it's certainly the world's best climate change act, uh, requiring that Britain write a carbon, actually a carbon budget on an annual basis. And that would be designed by a committee of experts. And then policy in the country would be determined by trying to live within that carbon budget. You know, a great idea, and one that was beginning to bite during the, during the labor uh, government and now that we have a very conservative government in power, the political will that they have been 
willing to exert on this, very different. Um, and they're now trying to work their way around it. Um, civil society so far hasn't been strong enough to oppose that um, yet, although we're, we're going to certainly try. China. Um, China is, and India actually, are both fascinating um, in that they, as you know, have the um, enormous populations and are developing very rapidly. Um, they're both reliant on coal for energy. And, uh, you know, you see various numbers about how rapidly coal plants are being built in China, but whether it's one a week or once a month, um, they're going up very rapidly. Same in India. India is looking to build a lignite coal, the dirtiest form of coal plant, that's uh, so big that once they build it, it will be responsible on its own for 1% of global carbon emissions. Um, you know, an astounding thing. And the problems are related but different in the two countries. Uh, in, in India, the, there are, um, the number is not on the top of my head, but there are uh, tens of millions of people who have no power whatsoever. And um, it becomes understandable why the government is rushing to build coal-fired power stations to some degree when, when you realize that there's this enormous populace completely lacking in power and when without access to electricity, um, many of the other good social development things like that you can achieve by microfinance and starting small companies and so on, many of those things uh, just aren't available unless you have some uh, access to electricity. So, um, you know, there is now a movement among Indian NGOs to oppose coal-fired power stations uh, but it, it is a more complicated thing there than it would be in, in the United States where it's been very effective or in Europe where we have alternatives. One of the things we're looking at there is actually to get involved in uh, helping to build um, solar power um, stations that would give electricity for the first time to people who haven't had it. Um, and there you do have this robust uh, legal system with the ability to uh, for citizens to come in and, and oppose things um, because it was it was based on the UK model, of course, it was a colonial possession, but the uh, environmental laws and the ability to use the courts is, is much better in, in India. China quite different, a much more closed society. So the question is always what Westerners can do to exert any, any influence there. And the answer is probably not all that much and the hope is that the Chinese, clearly the Chinese government is beginning to understand the need to change uh, its rush to coal. I mean, they're building actually more renewable energy than anyone else in the world. Um, and Chinese citizens are themselves beginning to complain, not about CO2 emissions, but as we all know from watching the Olympics in Beijing, uh, about the air pollution. So the Chinese government is beginning to get it, I think. Um, the question is whether we'll get it quickly enough. One thing that gives me a little hope uh, is that the Chinese Politburo is made up largely of, not of lawyers or people who are born politicians, but most of them are trained to be engineers. And um, you know, my sense is that when engineers really get that there's a problem, then they decide there must be a solution. And they have so much central authority 
that there is the possibility there of moving into a different policy quickly when they when they really begin to understand it. But I think it's hard for Western groups to do much. A number of the American organizations do have offices there and do offer you know, technical um, support and assistance to the Chinese government as it's thinking about what to do. And that's about the most we can do, I think. And you mentioned awareness and, and uh, Beijing uh, Olympics. Obviously, when you're in a country like China, um, you, you sometimes can't actually see across the street because mm -hmm. the pollution, pollution is so bad. So, so is, is the government genuine in actively uh, trying to mitigate this? And do they still, are they still beholden to the economic piece in a way that's really too much, in your opinion? That's a good question, and I'm not a China expert. Uh, I think the economics is what they're most worried about. I mean, what they have to balance is the, um, uh, as I know only by reading lots of things, but they, um, there is a great need to, uh, perceived by the Politburo in balancing the need to keep growing in order to keep the Chinese population happy um, against the need to do something about pollution and, uh, and climate change. So I think they are actually taking it very seriously. I mean, the question really is whether they feel they can do enough, quickly enough. And what do you envision for the future of Client Earth uh, in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? Mm, great questions. I mean, in five years, I would like to have um, stopped the use of coal in Europe. Um, I would like to have extended our, our work. We're now working in Africa in three countries on forestry issues, Ghana, Gabon, and uh, Congo Brazzaville. And I'd like to be able to extend our international work. Um, I would also like, I have a, a dream of a set of lawsuits that would attack the use of, um, of carbon uh, in industry. And I would like maybe five years may be too short, but to establish the principle that uh, companies may be held liable, actually held liable for the damage of them producing CO2 that is added to the atmosphere and um, enhances global warming. And beyond that, to make it difficult or impossible for coal companies to raise any money on the London, London Stock Exchange, which is where they raise most of their money globally. Um, in addition to that, to have done more protection of the uh, terrestrial ecosystems than we've yet had a chance uh, to do. So big inroads on um, moving people towards understanding how to take care of climate change and doing some better protection of the uh, biosphere. and moving into other countries that could use this kind of work. Um, in, in 20 years, I mean, what I would like to see is beyond those immediate crises really that we're all aware of and we're all trying to deal with, um, from a legal perspective, what I'd like to see is the evolution of what I think of as environmental law 2.0. You know, when environment, as environmental law has been written, whether it's Europe or the United States or elsewhere, it's been in response to situations, crises um, that have emerged. So it was clear that uh, water pollution and air pollution were a big deal in the United States in 19, around 1970. So the first big cases 
or rather first big statutes addressed those areas. Uh, we didn't even know about climate change in, in 1970. Uh, so as new problems come up, new legislation gets addressed piecemeal to whatever problems are arising. But what I would like to see is a much more holistic perspective. Uh, if you now were to enforce all of the existing environmental laws, you still wouldn't protect the, uh, the environment adequately. You know, we don't have a regime of law in place anywhere in the world uh, whereby if you made all of it actually work, it would protect the, the climate or the biosphere. So within 20 years, I'd like to see what I think of as environmental law 2.0, which would, in this design, have this holistic perspective so that if implemented properly, you would have a global ecosystem and its people who were appropriately protected. That would be my vision. And are you optimistic uh, in the next 10, 20 years about governments and people coming together to, to really save our planet? I'm optimistic by choice. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important to, to remain optimistic and to remain confident and positive. Uh, I actually get um, a lot of my own confidence and positivity, if you will, from, uh, from my Zen practice, um, which, is, which is a very good way to find it. But I do remain confident and positive. I think it's all about awareness, you know, and people have the capacity to look around and see what's going on, and then the capacity to change their minds and, and do something. So uh, it's, of course, an open question whether enough of us will all agree to see it and then to do something. But I think the question is very much an open one, and I, I'm constantly being um, encouraged by the information that's available, by the sophistication of many people's views on these things, and by kids' reactions to pollution. So yeah, I'm optimistic. I think uh, we certainly can do it, and I'm optimistic that we will. And obviously the kids are going to be the ones that are inhaling the carbon dioxide and making new laws. So. Uh, yes. Pr presumably, yes. presumably, they're going to become much more aware of these uh, these crucial issues. Well, for our listeners, the best way to reach James and to support Client Earth's work is through clientearth.org, and uh, click on the webpage links above this podcast for further details. James, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your vital work. Thank you, Robert. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.